as we work through this series, I'm amazed by the black and white nature of John in his letter to the church in Ephesus. It seems that there was no middle ground with the Apostle John. There was no gray matters when it came to our walk with Jesus Christ. We live in a world that's full of gray issues and gray matters. And the reason why is because we never want to define truth for what it is, that it's absolute and that it is real. And yet, in John's day, it seemed that that had become an issue as well, that there was some room for swaying back and forth, understanding who Jesus Christ is and how to live out the Christian life. But John goes over and over and over again with these stark contrasts in his letter. Notice just for a moment as we kind of work through First uh, John uh, verse, uh, chapters 1 through chapters 3 that we see the contrast of light and darkness. We have the contrast of either we will love or we will hate. We have the contrast that we'll believe in a truth or a lie. We have the contrast that we are either children of God or the children of the devil. He goes on to say that either we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit or we have the spirit of the Antichrist. I don't know about you, but those seem to me to be stark contrasts. There's no middle ground for John in the life of the believer. He wants us to understand that we are going to either be one or the other. He says either we're going to be real or we're going to be counterfeit. And as these contrasts go, and those are just the ones that we have studied up to this point, there's many more that are to come. John wants us to take a position about who we are going to be and to live that out in our everyday life. He wants us to understand that the Christian life is going to be distinct from all things that are unholy. Now last week I shared from a book that spoke about the scandal within the evangelical world. And the scandal is, is that even though we profess Jesus, even though we say that we study the Word of God, even though we believe in the hope of Jesus Christ coming back again, that we live very similar lives as to those who have no hope, those who don't read the Word, those who don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, And I think that pastors throughout, especially America, are trying to figure out where's the disconnect? What what is causing the evangelical world that has such a high focus on God's Word in our everyday life? Do we find people uh, time in and time out living contrary to that even though they profess one particular thing? John brings this up because the idea is is how can we look at casual Christianity here in America and square it up with 1 John's picture of Christianity? And I will tell you, it can't. It can't. And John wants us to know that throughout this book that we need to understand that either we're going to be on fire for Jesus Christ, we're going to be obedient to his call, or we are going to find ourselves walking the life of sin. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. There's no casual, uh, cozy center that we can stay and be a part of. Now, throughout this series, I've tried to remind you over and over again of the context, the historical context of this book. 
Uh, We have, of course, in the city of Ephesus where John is writing this letter that false teachers have come into the local church. And it's not that they just came into the local church, but they had actually been a part of that church at one time. And they started to espouse false teaching. This false teaching was called the teaching of Gnosticism. And one of its tenets was that all flesh was evil. So every part of, of what you see with your body is evil. And as a result of that, uh, they created a dichotomy between that which was evil, the flesh, and that which was good, the spirit. Now you say, well, what does that really matter? What that meant was, is as they divided the body from the spirit, it meant this. Your spirit was good, so focus in on that. And if you fall to all different kinds of sins with your body, it's really not your fault. Because the flesh is evil, it's going to do evil things. And so even though you may have this great relationship with Jesus Christ, you may be living all kinds of sins throughout your flesh, doing all these different things, and, and it's okay. And so a person would come into church, and you would hear about all their terrible things that they have done throughout that week, and they're not even sad about it, because they say, that's my flesh. It's not mine uh, to have to worry about. It's not my fault that I have this flesh, but let me tell you about how my intimate walk with Jesus is going on. Let me tell you how great I have in this partnership with Jesus, and the people in John's church would sit there and go, but wait a minute. You're talking about hanging out with prostitutes. You're talking about living lives of excess, and and your conduct doesn't show anything like it, and yet you talk about this vibrant relationship with Jesus. That's first century Gnosticism. I want to tell you today that Gnosticism, Gnosticism is alive and well in our churches today. You may say, well, how can a first century heresy be alive and well in the 21st century? I think I told you early on in this series that I'm reading this book how a first century heresy is destroying the 21st century church. And it's about how the basic understanding of Gnosticism is infiltrated the church today. One of the second tenets of Gnosticism was that they had a secret knowledge, meaning they had a way to get to God uh, that was only for them. And if they knew the right formula, if they had the right way to have this relationship with Jesus, then they could do really whatever they wanted because they were in with Jesus and their life really didn't matter after they had received this knowledge. Let me tell you how first century Gnosticism affects the 21st century. We go around and we pander Jesus to the world. And we tell people, just believe in Jesus. Just believe. And a person uh, says, yeah, I, I want eternal life. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to go to hell. I, I want Jesus. And so what, what do we say? We say, hey, you need to pray. You need to pray a prayer. And so uh, the individual prays a prayer, and, and all they do is they, they, they say, Lord, I don't want this to, to go on. I don't want to go to hell. Lord, I want you to take that away from me. And what happens is, is that person then, when they rise up from their knees, we tell them, you've got it. You've got what you need. You've got eternal life. You have everything in the sum total of all that Jesus taught you. It's it. What you needed to do is taken care of. Now, now there's nothing more to worry about. Now, Jesus does say if you want to uh, you know, have a vibrant Christian life, then, then you'll do some things. But really, at the end of the day, you've got what you need. And that is when you die, as my youth pastor used to say, you've got your fire insurance from hell, and so you don't have to worry about anything. Let me tell you something. If the gospel is not articulated with a call daily to deny yourself and to take up his cross, it is no gospel at all. 
And so what we need to understand is, is we are telling people, you can have this knowledge. You can have this Jesus. But it doesn't matter what you do after it. Once you attain this knowledge, you can do whatever you want. And so we wonder why survey after survey says we have all these born-again believers who live like the world, who live lives of sin, and we wonder why that's the case. John is going to tell us that there is a contrast, there is an incompatibility with a life of sin and the life of the Christian. And we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that there is a contrast, and we need to size ourselves up, not by the person sitting next to you and saying, well, I do a lot more ministry than they do, or, or I haven't fallen to the things they've fallen to, but we need to look at what John lays before us and put our lives in there and ask the question, am I a child of God? Now, I don't want you to uh, unduly uh, question your salvation, but a believer must always be working out a salvation with fear and trembling. That's what Paul tells us, and that's what John wants us to understand. Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. How do we do that? John gives us the way to do that. Let us look to 1 John chapter 3. In fact, uh, I'm going to ask as we stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to start at the paragraph break, which starts in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and we're going to go through uh, to uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world did not, does not know us is that they do, did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, you know my heart. You know how grieved I've been with this text. Lord, how do I look at my life? One who believes in your word, one who proclaims your word, one who helps lead a church, one who has seen the impact of your life, your death, and almost every day of my life since I've known you. And yet, Lord... I continually find myself being attracted and being drugged down into times of sin. And yet, Lord, I read from your word, from your Holy Spirit, these words. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. 
Lord, I confess to you that I find myself in sin. And Lord, I recognize that if I want to see you, if I want to know you on a daily basis, if I want to feel your presence, if I want to sense your calling in my life, if I want to pursue what you've asked of me, then sin can't be a part of me. And so, Lord, I pray that as we interact with this text, that we would over and over and over again come back to the place of asking if sin is so far from who you are and if my desire is to be so much of who you are, then why do I sin? Why do I choose the things that will bring dishonor and disgrace to you instead of glorifying you in obedience? Lord, I pray that through this text we would be changed. Lord, knowing that we will not eradicate the sinful nature, but that, Lord, we will see sin as you do. We will deal with it quickly, and that we will do all that we can to not do it in the future. Lord, I pray that that would be the heart of every person here. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to tell you right off the bat that this message is a simple one. Its premise is simple. It's not deep in the sense that everybody can understand it. But I believe that if we truly understand what this text is saying, and for that matter what the text is going to say for us next week, because this is kind of a part one in in a two-part series, because we'll get the rest of the story later on in the text all the way through verse 10. If we understand and recognize what John is saying, we will look differently at who we are as Christians. We will begin to see the contrast that John has been telling us over and over again that we cannot live uh, one way and think that we can have a relationship with God on the other side. I want you to pull this one thought out. If you call yourself a Christian, if you profess the name of Jesus Christ and you have the hope of eternal life, then you must live a life. You must live a life that shows your incompatibility to sin. I want you to go to the neighbor next to you, look to the neighbor next to you, and I want you to say, sin does not mix with Christ. Tell your neighbor that. I want you to tell your neighbor, and really get, okay, you mumbled it to him. I want you to say, sin does not match up to the Christian life. If we think that we can be Christians and two-time our Savior, as my dad used to say to me as a young child, you've got another thing coming. You can't do it. Sin and Christ, sin and the Christian life, sin and the Word of God are mutually exclusive. You can't force them together. I thought of some ways that we could think about this. Incompatibility in Webster's Dictionary is best defined as the relationship between two propositions that cannot both be true at the same time. So here's the case. John sets forth two propositions before us. Sin and the Christian life. And what he says is they can't be merged. They can't be mingled together. Well, what are some illustrations of how that uh, plays out? 
The first thing I think of is one of the first contrasts that he gives, light and darkness. We don't walk into this room and say, boy, the light seems really dark today. It doesn't work. We don't say, boy, the dark seems really light today. Those words, those terms, those facts are mutually exclusive of one another. And I think that we need to understand that as we move forward. We cannot look at the, the Christian and say, boy, that, that Christian sure, sure sins a lot. It doesn't work. The, the very nature of us being Christians should be exclusive to the idea of sin in our lives. I think of the illustration of the, of the two substances of oil and water. If you were to take a bucket of water, and I thought about doing this, but uh, I'm not too good with messy illustrations, and we'd have oil and water all over the place. But if I had a bucket of water here, and I was to pour oil on it, you would see the oil dip down into the water as it fell into that bucket. But you would notice very quickly that that oil would find its way back to the top, and it would sit at the top. Why? Because the molecules of oil and water cannot mingle. And so just as there's a contrast between light and darkness for the Christian, we need to understand that when sin uh, is involved in the Christian life, what should happen is that when the sin comes into our lives, our life as a child in Christ should say, that doesn't mix. It doesn't connect. The molecules of who I am, if you will, as a uh, saved individual under Christ cannot mix with sin. The final illustration that I want you to think about, or metaphor, if you will, when, when you think of this two mixing of things, is the idea of two magnets that have opposite uh, poles to them. And what will happen is, is of course, if you set them up the right way, they'll connect together. But if you flip one of them and you create the uh, reaction, those magnets won't come together. You can try to force them together. You can try to hold them together. But as soon as you let go, the magnets will shoot uh, away from one another. And what that helps us understand is they're incompatible. They don't fit. They don't merge together like we would want them to. And in the life of of Christ, as Christians, when sin comes our way, we should be like that magnet that pushes that sin away and says, "I, I can't be a part of that. It's incompatible to who I am and what I'm all about. This is what I want us to see in John's writing this morning. That in our lives of sin, And I don't know how you sin, and and you may not know how I sin, but we need to recognize that sin should not be something that we just say, well, it's going to happen, and so, you know, really, what can we do about it? But we need to look at sin and say, sin seems to be the greatest oxymoron for a Christian. It does not make sense. And if we understand that, then we're going to have a better understanding of how to deal with it and understand the death that sin brings as a result. So the first thing I want us to look at, there's three things that show that the Christian's incompatibility with sin. First of all, sin is incompatible with God's law. It's incompatible with God's law. Notice what our text says in verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, before I get into the idea of sin, I want us to talk for a moment about God's law. When we see God's law, some of us may think that God's law means the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and some of the other commands in the Old Testament that are seen in the first five books of the Bible. And that's not what John is talking about. 
The law also isn't just what we have as the Word of God, meaning uh, what, what we have here. Because at that point, John is writing, and, and much of the Bible still hasn't been uh, put together yet. So what John is talking about is he's talking about all the words of the prophets, all those that had been contained at that point into the Old Testament books, and all of the teachings of Jesus Christ that are now being reiterated through the pastoral letters and the general epistles that we're going through, that all of that contains what God would define as his law, our way of living the Christian life, and God's way of showing us how that Christian life ought to be lived out. And so the first thing we need to understand is if sin breaks uh, God's law, we need to understand what that means. What is the law and how does it break God's law? First of all, as we look at God's law, it, it achieves a threefold purpose. As we look at God's law, we see first of all that God's law commands our direction. The reason why we have the scriptures now is because God wanted to reveal himself to us, his people. And in doing so, he says, I want you to know who I am, what I'm all about, and how I want you to live. And so I want you to view the Bible as your scriptural guidebook. It is your map. It is the way you understand the direction that you need to go. Now, in regards to this guide map, it's going to tell us how to live, how to act, how to know God, how to respond to God. It's going to tell us that uh, there's a way that seems right to us, but there's a better way that comes from God. And the way that we see that over and over again in the psalmist's writings is that the psalmist will say uh, that the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Do you view God's word as that? Do you view God's word as your uh, roadmap to how you're going to live? And what that means is, I don't know about you, I, I had a chance to go to a Cubs game this last week, and of course the Eisenhower Expressway is you know, completely messed up right now. And so we, we made the decision, instead of sitting on the Eisenhower, that we would uh, take Irving Park Road and kind of work our way around. Well, I don't go that way very often, and so I had on my phone uh, Google Maps, And what I was amazed with is that the Google Maps has a view of things that I don't have because I don't know what the next street is, but it's looking at it from a satellite view and it's telling me everything that it needs to be done. Now, I have a choice. Am I going to trust Google Maps or am I going to trust myself? I will tell you that Google Maps may be pretty cool, but God's Word is so much better. And what we need to do is make the decision if we are going to put our faith and trust in the direction that God has set us in, or are we going to say, you know what, I think I know a better way. I will tell you, had I made my own decisions, I would have found myself lost. And some of you today find yourself lost in sin, not because you don't believe in the Bible, but you have failed to allow it to be the lamp unto your feet and the light unto your path. And so you understand, well, the Bible's there, but you're not reading it. You're not understanding it. You're not allowing it to guide your decisions. And so when sin comes, you have no idea how to defend against it, how to deal with it, or to understand that you are so much greater than that sin that is tempting you and trying to bring you down. I love what the psalmist says. Turn for a moment in the book of Psalm, uh, Psalms to uh, Psalm 19, just for a moment. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, uh, verses 7 through 11. Just to remind us again how great this book before us is. 
And how we should, as the psalmist says in Psalm 1, meditate on it day and night. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Does your soul need some reviving this morning? Don't look to your wife to revive your soul. Don't look to your pastor to revive your soul. Don't look to your church, per se, to revive your soul. Go to the Word of God. The Word of God will revive your soul. Notice what he says. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure. It endures forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. Do you view the scriptures as he's going to articulate in verse 10 that they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are more sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is a great reward. When you look at the scriptures, do you see that word before you as a great treasure? Do you? I don't know about you, but a great treasure I want to be a part of. Do you view it as something that will make you wise? Do you view it as something that will bring great reward? The Word of God says it will do that. And sin is totally incompatible with it. Now notice the next thing that we see about uh, this uh, law that we see. It commands our direction. Notice next, it commends our dedication. The second thing that the law and the word of God does is it continually speaks well of obedience. Over and over and over in the pages that are in your hand, you have story after precept after proverb after historical uh, events that have taken place that point out obedience is good. When you obey, you will do well for yourself. You will uh, find blessing and not trouble. The blessings that come are come when we honor God and we walk by Him. Hebrews chapter eleven is a trophy case of why obedience is good. Now, did the people in Hebrews eleven get everything that they wanted? No, but they weren't looking for their treasure, for their uh, riches in this world, but the world that was to come. And over and over and over again, by faith. They were obedient. The book, of, the book that's in your hand, God's Word, is a book that praises obedience. It tells us this is the life. You are to be obedient. I want you to turn for a moment to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you don't know where the book of Deuteronomy is, go to the beginning of the Bible. And it's the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy is written by Moses at the end of of Moses' life uh, as the law of the Lord is being laid out before the children of Israel. And right before the time where Joshua will take over and, and lead the people into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 28, God shares a chapter that I think we need to understand that is, in essence, many ways, the synopsis of of why the Bible has been written for us. Notice uh, the heading. Uh, Someone yell out what the heading is for Deuteronomy 28. Blessings for obedience. 
Now notice what he says. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Now, he gives a ton of blessings. Now, I want you to notice uh, what, uh, what he says later on in verse 13. I, I love this, and I, I don't think I've ever seen it before, to be quite honest with you. In verse 13 of uh, verse, uh, chapter 28, he says the following, The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, listen to what he says, you will always be on top and never at the bottom. What a promise. You will always be on top and never at the bottom. Now, what that doesn't mean is that you're going to be rich and, and, you're, and there's always going to be happiness because the Word of God tells us that sometimes trials come and we don't understand why those trials come, but they come because God is refining us and changing us and, and teaching us a greater obedience. But what that means is if I follow the ways of the Lord, then I will find a life that is full of contentment, full of joy amidst great struggles, And is full of an understanding that God is for me who can be against me. And I can tell you as a Christian that when I have followed God's laws, I always have found myself on the top of the world. I have. Never, please hear me, never have I ever said, man, I wish I would have just disobeyed. Think about that. When was the last time you regretted obedience? My seven-year-old is struggling with obedience right now. And I, 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 I want to pull the hair out of my head because I, I, I keep telling him, when have you gone wrong in obeying? Tell me one time where you have obeyed and something has befallen you that you didn't want to happen. I don't know, Dad. That's his response all the time. When was the last time you disobeyed and trouble came? All the time, Dad. All right. Now, if we would just understand that obedience will bring forth a production of God's blessings and good things in your life and understand that uh, disobedience brings trouble and harm, if we would just figure that out, we would be all good. You know what Noah said? Dad, when did you figure that out? (laughs) You're grounded, son. (laughs) Because we don't get it. Oh, it's easy to teach our children, just listen, just obey. And little do we know as as adults that this is harder than it is just to teach. God commends our dedication. Over and over again, he's saying, my children, well done. Keep obeying, keep trusting. I love what what, uh, um, is is articulated in uh, Joshua chapter 1. Uh, Joshua chapter 1, just for a moment, tells us the following. Uh, He's uh, telling, God is telling Joshua to be strong and courageous. Now notice what he says. Be careful in verse 7. He says, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. And do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. I don't know about you, but I desire to be prosperous and successful in the Christian life. I desire uh, to uh, enjoy the good things that my God has laid before me. 
And in doing so, what that means is I need to know what his word tells me and shows me how to live. And so what I need to do is what Joshua was told, to meditate on it day and night. You don't know the word, how can you know the direction God will have for you? You don't find yourself in the world, how can you know the things that God is trying to warn you against? God commends our dedication when we follow his words. Now notice the final thing that the law does. It condemns our disobedience. Just as God commends, speaks well of, our dedication to his law, so also he condemns the disobedience to it. Now notice again, if hopefully you didn't move away from Deuteronomy 29, but in Deuteronomy 29, we have, of course, the blessings of obedience. Now go to the end of verse 14, and most Bibles should have a heading. And what does that heading say? Get there again, get there, get there. 28, Deuteronomy 28. Let's everybody get there. What does it say? So we had what for obedience? We had the commendation of blessings. You obey, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. Now notice what it says, just very quickly. In Deuteronomy uh, 28, notice that the curses, we have 14 verses of blessing. From verse 15, follow all the way through to the end of Deuteronomy 28, and he is still going He is still telling them all the things that will happen. Where does the verse end? What verse ends uh, chapter 28? I don't know about you, and Al could be able to help me. I don't know how many verses that is, but that's a lot more than 15. That's three times the amount of 15 if I do my math right. I don't want to disobey. I don't want to have God having to over and over again say, that is not the way to live. Now, either you can submit yourself to my word, or you will uh, be taught how to follow my word. Now, that same seven-year-old that I have has a choice. He can believe that obedience will bring forth joy in his life and make a decision and say, when mom says something, I will obey, or he can have mom and dad teach him how to obey. Which one do you think he's going to want more? I think he wants to listen the first time. Never have I seen my son walk away after obeying mom crying. But when I have to teach him something, it brings tears of remorse. As believers, we have a choice. Either we can take what God has laid before us, and we can say we're going to follow this, or God will say, I will teach you. I don't know about you, but I have never enjoyed the discipline of my God. How easy it is for us to, and how good it is for us to hear it the first time and believe it, just as he has said it, than for him to bring us back, as I've done with my children, and point at it and say, now there's some trouble. You didn't do what I said. You disobeyed. Now what does all of this have to do with sin? If God has laid forth his law, his direction in our lives, if God over and over again through his revealed word tells us, obey, 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 and he blesses obedience, and then he shows us disobedience, and by the way, I didn't even talk about this, but but story after story in the historical books, we see how God blesses those who obeyed. But what do we see, especially in the nation of Israel, 
when that obedience wasn't there. Curse after curse, hardship after hardship, punishment after punishment. Now we have this book that we call God's Word that commands our direction, and it tells us the way to live. Let me tell you something. When we sin, we look at God's Word and we say, you know what? I don't need your Word. I'm going to do it my way. Do you see how incompatible disobedience is to the very nature of the Word of God? We cannot uphold the word of God and say, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And, and John says, and continue in lives of sin. It doesn't work. Now, notice what, if you just think I'm getting theoretical with you, let's get back to the text. Notice what the text says. The text tells us in 1 John chapter 3, let me get myself back there. 1 John chapter 3, everyone who sins breaks this law. Okay, this law of how we are to live. Now notice he says the word, he says everyone who sins. How is the law broken? It's broken by this word called sin. It's the Greek word hamartia. Hamartia means missing the mark, missing the standard. And so what he's saying is, is here's my word. I've directed you how to live. And John says you've missed it. You've missed the mark. It's not the only word for sin, but it's one of the most used words for sin. And what is being articulated here is I've set the standard. And the standard is this, and you haven't lived up to it. When I was in high school, I uh, was a part of the track team. And no, I didn't run the two and one mile events. But my body uh, lended me more towards the field events. And I threw shot put in discus. And when I would go uh, to meets, uh, there were always two lines two marks that I was looking for. The first mark was the, the meet record, meaning at, at that event, that was the farthest anybody had thrown on that given uh, event. The second thing that I always looked for was the state qualifying mark. Now, what if I was to tell you that I was a state qualifier in the shot put in discus, but I never hit that mark? What would you say of me? You would say, Tim, you're living a lie. You're saying something that is not true. As believers, we go around and we tell people all the time, I, I'm a person of the word. And yet over and over and over again, we miss the mark, we miss the mark, we miss the mark. Let me tell you something, apart from God's grace, we'll never hit the mark. We never hit the mark. And that's why the Bible says, for all have sinned, all have missed the mark. They have fallen short of the glory of God. And so here's God's word. He's told us what to do, and, and we're a follower of God's word. And, and instead of following it, following the rule book that God has given us, the one that we elevate, the, the middle name in our church's name, we choose sin over the word. How incompatible that sin is with God's law. Now notice the second thing that is brought up. The second thing that's brought up is sin is incompatible with the Christian life. I want you to skip from uh, verse 4 to verse 6 for a moment. In verse 6, it says this, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now notice this. John says, okay, I want to remind you what the Christian life is all about. And the Christian life is all about walking as Jesus did. Over and over again, he says, I want you to abide. I want you to remain. I want you to live as he is righteous, so you ought to be righteous. As he is pure, so you ought to be pure. And the Christian life over and over again is being articulated as something that we are to live out just as Jesus did. 
Now notice what is brought out in this fellowship that comes. First of all, John says in verse 6, there are benefits to this relationship. Notice what he says in the negative way. He says, no one who continues at the end of verse 6 continues to sin, has either seen him or known him. And so the person that sins has not seen him or known him. So what that means is, is the one who is righteous can see him and can know him. So we flip the negative of what he's saying to understand what is the positive outcome that can happen. And in there, there are two benefits that we see uh, in the Christian life or Christian fellowship. The two benefits are seen, first of all, in seeing him and then knowing him. But what do those mean? The word seeing there gives us the idea of perceiving or recognizing him. And so when we are living lives of obedience, we will see God. We will see him. But how will we see him? How will that take place? The idea here is that we will recognize who he is. There will be a recognition that we know who he is. I love uh, John chapter 10, uh, Jesus being the great shepherd. And he says that my sheep will hear my voice. When I whistle for them, when I call for them, they will come. Why? Because they recognize me. They know me as their shepherd. A follower of Jesus Christ, one who does not find themselves continually in a life of sin, sees Jesus for who he is. He's their Lord. He's their master. He's their savior. He's their king. And if we don't have this relationship with God, we will never see God for who he is. We'll never see Christ for who he is. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, just write this passage down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is what Paul says about this understanding of recognizing and seeing uh, Christ for who he is. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, uh, what did I say? Chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of of this age and of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this world understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Do you understand that you can know and recognize who God is if the Spirit of God is living inside of you? But understand this, the moment that you find yourself living in sin, the moment that you continue to allow sin to reign in your lives is the time where Jesus Christ will become dimmer and dimmer in your view. You won't be able to see him. You won't be able to recognize him for who he is. I've talked with individuals over and over again, and I've known this in my own life, that usually when I find myself falling more and more to sin, my relationship with God seems more and more distant. I don't, I don't see him as clearly as I want to. I don't, I don't feel his presence as, as much as I, I wish I could. I don't recognize the times where, where he has laid before me times of, of great uh, help in my time of need. 
Many of us have wondered, why do I fall to sin? Why do I fall to the temptations that I do? The Bible says that no temptation uh, should befall us because we have a way of escape. Tim, I don't have a way of escape. You don't recognize that, that it seems that there's no way out. And my question would be, is that you're focusing so much on the temptation and not on Jesus Christ. Because you have fallen in love with the issue of the temptation that befalls you, that you have forgotten that if you keep your eyes on Jesus that he'll be the author and perfecter of your faith. If you focus in on him, if you fine-tune to say, i got to make sure I see Jesus. Yesterday we were watching uh, Noah play soccer. And uh, my, my middle son, Joshua, is a wanderer, but he's a wanderer who wants to make sure at all times he checks in. And he had wandered over to the playground, and I'm watching him from afar. And at one point, he, there was a change in the people, and a game was leaving, and he was going down a slide, and you could tell. He's like, okay, where, where are my parents? And he sees this mass of people leaving for the parking lot, and you can see fear in his eyes. And he's looking around, and you can tell he is just getting worked up. And then he sees my eyes connect with his. And the biggest smile came over him. And he says, I'm no longer lost. I'm found. There's my dad. There he is. Some of us are living right now in the bewilderment of that playground experience for Joshua. And it is time for us to stop playing games and look up and say, you know what, where's my father? Where's my savior? And lock eyes with him. This is what John is wanting us to understand. If we see him, we recognize him, then we will do well for ourselves. Number two, it's involving knowing God. Knowing God. The idea here is of knowing is... is, um, the word gnosko in, uh, in uh, the Greek language is the idea of experiencing intimacy. Christianity is not just a body of ideas or thoughts. It's not a religion of the intellect, but it's an experience, and not the experience of a religion, but an experience with a person. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is the Christian faith. You involve yourself and interact with, your, with, with Jesus Christ as an individual, and it is not built on the foundation of facts and figures as much as you saying, I've experienced God, I have put God to the test, and God has proven himself faithful every time. Do you know Jesus Christ in that way? Not just with your word of profession, but in the understanding that you know him and have experienced him. Now, how does this fit in to this idea of sin? Here we say that we want to see Jesus. We're Christians. We want to see Jesus. We want to experience Jesus. Notice what the word then tells us about sin. Because in verse 4, we go back to it and it says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, he says, sin, hamartia, is lawlessness. And he uses a word, ammonia, which literally means a flagrant rebellion. Now let's talk about the incompatibility of that. The hymn says, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. But every time he does, I shake my fist at him and say, what in the world do you think you're telling me? Where's the incompatibility? Oh, we want this vibrant walk with Jesus. Oh, I, Jesus, I, I want you to be in my life. Jesus, I recognize you as my Lord and Savior. Jesus, I recognize that you're my great physician. I recognize you're the Savior of my souls. But let me tell you, if you think you can tell me what to do, you've got another thing coming. The word there, ammonia, is the word that we get the English word mutiny. 
that we find ourselves, in essence, rebelling against God and saying, God, mutiny, of course, is used uh, most times. I think of the old uh, family classics movie, Mutiny on the Bounty, and uh, this old movie about a mutiny that takes place on a ship. And it's the removal, it's a coup against the leader of, of a group. And so what we say is, oh, we want this vibrant relationship with Jesus, but it has to go our way. How incompatible is that sin? We want to be close to Jesus, we want to see Jesus, but then we find these issues of sin in our life. And it's not just failing to hit the mark, but it is an outright rebellion. Your sin and my sin is not something that we should overlook, but it is us shaking our fists at God, saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I know what is best for me. Even though you say it's wrong, even though you say I shouldn't do it, you're wrong. I've got it right, and you've got it wrong. It's incompatible. Now, notice the third thing. So we've got to catch up here a little bit. Sin is incompatible with the Christian life. I'll throw up the other two there, the benefits of fellowship. We had the barriers of fellowship there, the barriers that are seen in the life of, uh, of sin. You can't have intimate walk with Jesus Christ if you live a life of sin. You can't do it. Notice what he says. Here's the barrier. The sin is there. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. If you find yourself in a life of perpetual and habitual sin, then you have not seen God and you have not known him. You've not experienced him. What a sad thing that would be for us who hold the word of God so high. Then also the third thing, sin is incompatible with our Lord. Go back to verse 5 for a moment. It's incompatible with our Lord. Notice what he says. But you know that he appeared. Who's he? Jesus Christ. He appeared, speaking of his first advent, his first coming, so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Let's start at the last part of that. The first thing we need to understand about sin is that sin is missing the mark. Sin is flagrant rebellion. Against who? The righteous one. The one in him, there is no sin. So the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is righteous. And that if Jesus is righteous, he's without sin. What does that mean? That means the one that we attest to, the one we ascribe worth to, the one we worship, the one we praise and adore, is the perfect one, the righteous one, the one without sin. And we say we want to be like him. That the life of the Christian is the life that pursues Jesus then let me ask you the question, why do we then sin? If our model is sinlessness, then why does Timbidal fall to sin so often? What is it about that? We're going to learn the next week how we defeat that, how we deal with it. But I want us to understand that if we truly believe Jesus is all that he says he is, that when we sin, we make our message and our beliefs and our actions incompatible with one another. They don't fit. It's trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. It doesn't work. Notice what he goes on to say. He gives us the reason why he was sent. Why did Jesus come? Notice what John says. He tells us the following. He says, that, uh, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. What was the number one reason why Jesus came? To take away our sins. If Jesus, who is our Christ, who is our Lord, if that Jesus whom we praise and adores, main focus in his earthly life was to take away sin, then why do we allow sin to be so prevalent in our lives? 
If that's the reason why he left heaven, endured the scorn and the shame of being a human, if he did that, and that's why he gave up his life, if he did all those things that I believe that are recorded in Scripture, if he did all of that for me, then why would I, after he's lavished his love upon me through the person and work of Jesus Christ, then not be as serious as I can be about this sin? It's incompatible. It does not work. It does not fit. And so what does John say? If we know that he is righteous, verse, uh, let's see here, verse uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 29, uh, says this. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So how do you do that? If we have the hope in Jesus Christ, chapter 3, verse 3, we will purify ourselves just as he is pure. If we believe Jesus is who he is, then our life will show it. Because we will model our life after him. I want to quickly close up. And I know in some ways you'll say, well, Tim, is it a different kind of message? And it is because we'll learn more next week. But I want to articulate just a couple things. We're going to learn next week that this does not mean that we're sinless. That we should pursue sinlessness. We'll talk about that next week. But today I wanted to paint the picture of the contrast between our sin and God's holiness. Now, next week, we'll go into more detail about how the Christian is to continually find themselves in an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ instead of abiding in sin. The issue isn't if you've sinned, you've lost all these things. So the question I want to ask you this morning is the following. Does your life have a greater picture of God or a greater picture of yourself in it? This last week, how much of it was led by God? And how much of it was led by yourself and your desires? You want to fix it? There are four things very quickly I will give you. Number one, admit sin. Don't excuse it. You want to start walking the life that God has called you to? Admit sin. Don't excuse it. We live in a world that excuses sin. We live in a world that breaks God's laws. And people uh, say, hey, it really isn't sin. We can live the way we want to. We don't have moral Uh, absolutes. There's really not a thing of right and wrong. And so we create our own truth. And even though we sin, we come up with different words for it. Sin, man will call an accident, but God calls an abomination. Sin, man calls a blunder, but God calls blindness. Man will call sin a defect, but God calls it a disease. Man calls it uh, by chance, God calls it a choice. Man calls sin an error, God calls it enmity. Man calls it just a fascination. God calls it a fatality. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it iniquity. Man calls it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man says it's a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it wickedness. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. How do you define sin in your life? How do you define that? How do you look at your sin? Admit it. It was hard for me this week to even want to get up and preach because there's sins in my lives that I, I, I want to have an excuse for. Well, <laughs> you know, God, you know. You know the life of the pastor. You know the life that I'm living. It's hard to live this way, and sometimes I'm going to say things I don't want to say. But it's not sin. It is sin, and I need to deal with it. Number two, be active in your study of Scripture. 
This isn't, these aren't Sunday school answers. These are basic answers that the Word of God gives us. How does a young man keep his way pure? How do I stay away from sin? By meditating on his law day and night. You want to stop falling to sin? Then be active in your study of Scripture. Know what the Word of God says. We have Awana. Why do we have Awana? Because when those Awana kids turn 34 years of age, they're still using those Scriptures to combat sin. That's why. Because we want them to hide God's word in their hearts so they may not sin against God. We need to know the scriptures. We need to know what God's word says. Number three, appreciate the incredible price Jesus paid. Do you really understand that Jesus came to save you, a wicked, wicked, wicked person? Holiness embodied, personified, to save a loser like me. Do we recognize he left perfection to take care of a dirtbag like me? Do you understand that? Do you appreciate that? When we appreciate the price that was paid, then we understand uh, what we do when we sin. The book of Hebrews says that we trample the Son of God underfoot. We throw him to the ground. Finally, abide in Jesus at all times. I, I can't tell you over and over again, if we just got this figured out, how well we would do for ourselves. Abide in Jesus. Where's your passion? Where's your heart? Where do you spend your time? Is it with Jesus? Is he your first? Is he your last? Is he your everything? When we understand what sin is and how incompatible it is with us, and we start living out these things, the life of the Christian will look much different because we will understand what he says again in verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that this message would impact my heart. Lord, it's hard to swallow because it goes to the very essence of who we are. We're saved by grace. We recognize it. We worship a risen and glorious Lord who is pure and without sin. And we live a life that wants to be like him. And yet, Lord, we cannot move beyond the contrast of that holiness that you've called us to pursue and our own pursuit of sin. And so, Father, I pray in the quietness of this room that we would deal with our sin, that we would recognize the affront that it is, and that we would see it for what it is. And so I'm so glad, Father, that you say we have confidence to enter the throne room with grace, that if we confess our sins, you say in 1 John, you will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Oh, Father, that we would do that so that we would live in an abiding relationship with you and so that we would be ready for not only your coming, but whatever calling you lay before us in the here and now so that we might bring you glory, honor, and praise of one who turns away from sin and continually pursues obedience. Give us the anointing of your spirit so that we can live this out because apart from him we can do nothing and we recognize our dependence on you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.